Some people say, we, not, we need to fight as dirty as the left or we're going to lose. I don't agree with that. We don't have to fight as dirty, but we have to fight as aggressively and as relentlessly. So here we are on the Sunday special with David Limbaugh, author of Jesus is Risen, which, if true, is bad news for me. We'll get to all that in just one second. But first, let's talk about your time in the grave. You know, occupying that basement condo. Life insurance is a deeply unfun topic. Most people don't like thinking about dying because it's depressing. They actually don't like thinking about life insurance either. But having life insurance feels great because if you're going to plot... You may as well not leave your family bereft, and getting that peace of mind doesn't need to be complicated. Policy Genius is the easy way to get life insurance. In minutes, you can compare quotes from top insurers to find the coverage you need at a price you can afford. From there, you can apply online, and the unbiased advisors at Policy Genius will handle all the red tape for you. They'll leave you free to do the things you actually enjoy, like, you know, not dying. And Policy Genius doesn't just make life insurance easy. Whether you're shopping for disability insurance to protect your income, or homeowner's insurance, or auto insurance, they can help you get covered fast. If you've been intimidated or frustrated by insurance in the past, Give Policy Genius a try. Just go to policygenius.com to get your quotes and apply in minutes. You can do the whole thing on your phone right now. In fact, you probably should. Just hit pause, go to policygenius.com, get that life insurance right now. There's no reason for you to die and leave your family without any money at all. Go do the responsible thing. Policy Genius, the easy way to compare and buy life insurance. Well, David Limbaugh, thank you for coming. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. So for folks who don't know, and this means nobody knows because I haven't told the story before, the way that I got started in political commentary was at least partially due to David Limbaugh, who I met for the first time in person today. Yeah. So we have been talking and corresponding for legitimately 17 years. Yeah. Uh, and this is the first time we've ever met in person, actually. Yes. So the way that this started is I was writing a column for the UCLA paper. I applied to Creator Syndicate, which was your syndicator yeah. for your column. Uh, and I applied cold and they picked me up. And then I had to get blurbs for the column so we could send it off to various newspapers. And I emailed you out of the blue. And just some random kid, and I was like, can you give me a blurb for my column? You kindly said, sure. And then you said, and also, if you decide to write a book on college campuses, then I would be happy to be the agent for it. And I thought, okay, well, then I should probably go ahead and do that. And then I wrote Brainwashed. Yeah. So we have been friends for 17 years now. Yeah. And it's pretty amazing. It took us this long to actually meet in it person. It really is. I don't mean to put you on the spot, but tell us the story of how we met. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's uh, more specific than I remember, but that's exactly right. And uh, I don't remember actually engaging in solicitation for your legal business, but I, <laughs> but, but I, uh, but I, did, I did want to encourage you to write. It, amazing prodigy. And, and what has always amazed me, too, about you is that uh, you didn't take off in an explosive way until maybe, what, the last year or two? Five years, maybe the last five, five four or years. five years, yeah. And maybe the Piers Morgan thing was the catalyst. Exactly, like 2013. Yeah, that's how fast time goes. But I've always, haven't I always told you that it's going to happen? Many times, ways? many times. And so it's gratifying. I loved, and I don't take any credit for it at all, but I just love having... Uh, been present as as this thing. Well, developed. you should take some credit for it because David was one of the people who, when I felt like crying because I wasn't actually progressing at the speed at which I was hoping to, David, you were always one of the people who, who was telling me that, stick with it, everything's going to be okay, people will eventually come around. Yeah, yeah, and our mutual friend Ann Coulter wanted to get you on the Supreme Court. I had a different path <laughs> for you. Okay, so let's talk about ways that the church and synagogue have, have screwed up. Because if you look at religious obser observation in the country, it's been markedly declining since the 1950s. The number of people who are affiliated with an official religion 
is, is much lower now than it used to be. People say that they are spiritual but not religious, which is the most empty phrase that I could yeah, possibly yeah. think of. Absolutely. It's, it's like you get, to, you get to say that you believe in God without actually having to do anything about it. Um, but it seems to me that there are three problems, three various approaches that have been taken, all of which have, have their problems. Approach number one is the approach that, that you mentioned, which is the let's have pizza and a guitar and come to church for the pizza and the guitar. And we won't talk politics at all. We will never threaten anything that you think about life. This seems to me the direction in which a lot of churches have gone, thinking this is going to draw in young yeah, people. Yeah, right. Young people don't want that. Young people want eternal values. They want to know why they're here and not in a movie right now. Yeah. They want to know what it is that makes church special, what it is about our 3,000-year history in Judaism and 2,000-year history in Christianity that makes it worthwhile to give up your Sunday morning when you could be out playing video games. Uh, do you think that you know the churches are doing a good enough job of, of leaving behind that sort of soft approach? Because I, I just... I think that too many of them are falling into this in an attempt to fill the pews in, in short order without actually getting to the root of the matter. Yeah, and I agree, and it worries me that you, you for example, a, a, a pastor, a preacher, has got to be willing to talk about sin in, in the pul from the pulpit. Uh, if he's afraid to turn people off, then he's doing a disservice. Um, now, I don't think, I don't want pastors to inject politics overtly. I want them to... Uh, advocate values that are consistent with, with the Bible and that may be consistent with conservative political values, but not do it in a, in a political or partisan way. And I don't mean to do it furtively. I just mean preach the Bible and preach uh, Christian values. But some of them are afraid and they stay away from these issues. I, I visited one church where the pastor said uh, right after Trump won, we're going to pray for the people who here who weren't in favor of Trump's, and I was so turned off by that because what about, uh, did they ever say that about Obama? And, and I, I, here's the thing, I don't want pastors to be political conservatives or political liberals. I want them to leave, leave all of that out uh, and just preach the gospel, preach the Bible. Uh, but some of them are afraid to do that. And even if they do get people in the door, I think ultimately they're not uh, going to keep them in the way that they want to keep them uh, because they're not going to fill them with what they need. So I think that, so we agree on problem number one. Problem number two is something you mentioned a little bit earlier, which is a feeling that you get from a lot of people who don't have a lot of familiarity with church, or maybe they do with the wrong churches when they're, when they're young. This feeling of incipient theocracy, the, you know, the folks who think Mike Pence oh. is going to reinstitute yeah. the Handmaid's Tale because he's a religious person. And they think back to their youths when they had a priest or a pastor or a rabbi who used to feel very oppressive. I think it's important for you know, religious communities to point out, look, we're here to help guide you and provide you the social fabric so that you can do the right thing. But we're not interested in grabbing the reins of government and then cramming down our version of life on you other than protecting life, liberty, and property. That's exactly right. And you, while you can look at uh, uh, world history and say, well, they did, that there was... We, we did dabble a lot in theocracy and intermixing church-state in that sense. But I think our framers were very clear. Uh, they wanted to prohibit the establishment of a national church. And the, the, the reason they wanted to do that is because they knew that if you have one church that's mandated, then you don't have re, uh, religious liberty. They wanted religious liberty for everyone. And uh, I mean, you can argue about whether it's ultimately about Christians and all denominations being whatever, but I don't care. The, print, the spirit of it is the same. I don't, as a Christian, I don't want to muzzle anyone. I want the freedom of religion and speech and association to be robust. And that's one thing, I, one tell, telltale sign of uh, the difference between libs and conservatives. 
Liberals are censors. Liberals suppress liberty. Liberty, liberals are intolerant. Uh, conservatives and Christians are tolerant. We have nothing to fear from the marketplace of ideas. We just don't want people to keep us from saying what we want to say, such as we're seeing now in the social media. But I'm on record on this. I'm against theocracy. Affirm it. It's the worst thing you could ever do. That's, we're not supposed to do that. Now, I think the, the Jews were supposed to do that in the Old Testament. They wanted, God wanted to be their king directly. They demanded a king and he ultimately gave it to them. But I, I think you would probably agree with that history. Maybe you wouldn't. I mean, in fact, I'd be interested if you didn't. But Christians for sure and, and Jews today, we don't want theocracy, do we? I mean, no right. way. And well, I mean, even, even in the Old Testament, God is, is really dicey about kingship and monarchy. Yeah. Right? I mean, Samuel is really not happy with the concept of, of the Jews wanting a king. Th that's right. Uh, that's my it, point. It's right. It's supposed yeah. to be a much more direct relationship between people and God yeah. without this sort of intermediary cramming things down yes. from, from the top. It's supposed to be a relationship between God and his children as opposed to somebody that, who's actually the enforcement mechanism for, for God from the, from the top. That's a point. So even that theocracy was not the, what we think of theocracy today. Right. And, yeah. and, even, and, and that theocracy existed in, in a different setting and at a different time, Obviously, uh, yes. um, there, there, there are many rabbinic responses to, to specifically this issue because Jews have never been in control of land for a couple of thousand years up until 1947, 1948 again. So th then there's the third issue with, with church and, and synagogue. And that is, I think, the most troublesome one for a lot of conservatives and Republicans. And it gets into some pretty dicey political territory, which is, of course, what makes this fun. So that is, um, there. I see it a lot among young people, which is the feeling that Okay, so you don't want theocracy, and you have values that you're preaching. What are you willing to say about politicians who are doing good stuff for you but may not share your values? And this, obviously, I'm referring to President Trump. Yeah. Here. There's a lot of controversy yeah. over how the evangelical community has treated President Trump, with some people saying that the evangelical community has acted... Uh, unfaithfully, in a certain sense, by greenlighting his bad behavior. Yeah. Other people saying, well, you have to back him. I mean, the opposition is legitimately anti-life. I mean, yeah. not, not pro-choice, but cel affirmatively celebrating yeah. uh, abortion. So how do you separate out the various strands of, of how Trump should be treated by, the, by, by Christians if they want to reach out particularly in an intellectually honest way to young people? I think that, uh, obviously, it's, it was a dilemma going in and for me when I didn't support him during the primaries, and I, there are a lot of things about him I didn't like, as you well know. I, I see Trump as uh, kind of the general in a, in a culture war and in a war for our salvation of the country, secular salvation, I don't mean literally. I see the left as so crazy and, and, and so antithetical to our views and what we, our vision of America that I applaud Trump fighting. Now, I, I don't like all the things he does, obviously, and I don't want to lose my uh, credibility or intellectual honesty by defending things that he does that I don't think are right. But since he's been in office, as opposed to before, I don't see him misbehaving that much in terms does no sexual dalliances, none of that kind of thing. He hasn't been accused of any of those kinds of things. Everything that's come up is about what has occurred prior to his, uh, being in office. I think Trump, uh, one of the reasons I was for Cruz and, uh, and, and not for Trump originally, I didn't believe he was a conservative. Um, and I think I was rational in believing that when you look at his past. I don't believe I'm selling out by now saying I'm supporting the fact, uh, the welcome fact that he has changed, and at least he's changed in terms of his policies. Uh, what we anticipated and what he's doing. He's governing for the most part as a conservative. 
And that's gratifying to me. His tweets. Yeah, I don't like the tone of some of them, obviously, and you've mentioned some of them. I don't, won't even say it. But I do like the fact that he's fighting. See, I think one of the reasons we have this problem, Trump is a symptom of, to me. We have a, a perception that the Republican Party wasn't fighting, that they were squishes, that they wouldn't ever fight Obama when, on budget battles, that they're always catering. Every time there's a compromise between Republicans and, and Democrats, the, the ball of socialism has marched a little bit incrementally down the field. You never see it go the other way when there's a compromise. It's only when we win and we force it down their throats. I mean, not force it, but we do it democratically. They force it down our throats, i.e. with Obamacare. So I, I don't, I, I see Trump as governing conservatively uh, and I, I, the, some of the things he says, oh, let me say this. I know that you and I, I, I hear, I, I watch and, and listen to your podcast a lot. I agree with you 99% of the time. I think we have a different perception, though, about Trump. And, and this is what bothers me about never Trumpers. They think we're sellouts. I haven't sold out. I, I have five kids. I have nothing to sell. I, I love America as much as I ever have. I am not offended by Trump's nationalism. I don't see code in, in Trump's nationalism to wall, white supremacy or, or alt-right or any of that. I, Co Trump and code don't mix. Trump is whatever he says is what he says. And, and so I don't see any of these sinister motives uh, that Trump has. He may say things that aren't true, but, but I don't take him that seriously. So as before, when I, some of the things he did, I was just appalled. Now I kind of laugh when I see these videos of him in the wrestling thing. Now I look back at him accusing Ted Cruz's dad of, of assassinating. I just laugh at that because I don't, it's so absurd. And I don't even take him seriously. It was dirty pool at the time. Don't get me wrong. But I, don't, I just don't take, see Trump as some sinister guy. I think he's really working for the good of America. And I mean, I really, of all the things he believes, I really believe he, he loves America. And, and I don't see a lot of evil in him. And I think as a Christian, I have a duty to support him because he's the guy that's standing uh, in the way, of, he's standing athwart. The, the advance of leftism. Okay, so I want to ask you in a second about the, the response to that. And this is coming from somebody who yeah. said, I'm much more likely now to support him than I was no, in, I in 2016. Yeah. But first, I want to talk to you about your Second Amendment rights. Gun lovers, listen up. Did you enter to win your brand new gun from the USCCA yet? If not, what are you waiting for? You're about to miss the deadline. What the heck's wrong with you? The gun a day giveaway ends very soon. You could get up to 24 chances to win your gun daily, but only if you act right now. It could be 24 Kimbers, 24 Glocks, 24 SIGs, even 24 AR-15s. Just text SAFE to the number 87222 and reveal which gun you could be taking home today. They want law-abiding citizens to have weaponry with which to protect themselves. You could be one of those people. Hurry, these free guns are not going to last long. And today's gun disappears at midnight tonight. The USCCA wants to get more guns into the hands of responsibly armed Americans like you. They're here to help train and protect the protectors. So do not put this off. Don't miss your chance because you could win a new gun every single day. All you have to do is text SAFE, S-A-F-E, to the number 87222. 222 and enter right now. And remember, you only have until midnight tonight to win today's gun. Just text the word SAFE to 87222 before it's gone forever again. SAFE, text it to 87222. Text SAFE to 87222. Check it out. The USCC has a lot of fantastic services. You're going to want to be involved with them no matter what. And you have a chance to win a free gun, so why not? Text SAFE to 87222. All right, so... 
the, the response to that, particularly when you talk to young people, is that some of the language that you're using to describe President Trump oh, yeah. uh, is, is pretty flattering. So you, you say that he's the general in the culture war, yeah. for example, or that uh, he, you think that he, he's doing what's best for the country. And the, the other way of saying it, sort of the other side of the coin is, dude's kind of a schmuck. Right, which yeah. is that, like he personally, he does not. He doesn't have a history of treating women well. Yeah. Obviously, he's been very skeezy in his business dealings. He lies a lot. He says a lot of things that aren't true. But he's a perfectly serviceable and better than serviceable vessel for a lot of my political priorities. And for that reason alone, since all the damage that he was going to do has now been done, right? I mean, I was afraid that he was going to course in the public culture, even though it's already coursed. He's done that. It's over. Can't put that cat back in the bag. Yeah. All right. He's going to. Uh, he's going to say things that I don't like. He's done that. Not sure that can be undone. Uh, he's going to soul suck the Republican Party. I think he hasn't really done that to too much of an extent. Um, but when you say to young people, particularly, uh, that he is a, you know, the, the feeling that he's a great leader, or that he's a, or that he's a good man, or that he's not, or that he's a, even a decent fellow. Like I don't think that he's a particularly decent fellow. I wouldn't want him as a business partner. Uh, I don't think that he's a good man. I wouldn't want him around my wife unsupervised, yeah. um, but as a vehicle for my, for my political viewpoint, which is a reflection of my values, I would certainly prefer him in the White House to, to Hillary Clinton or any other Democrat that they are willing to run at this point or probably in the near future. So with, with that being the case, you know, we're both coming at it from the perspective of people who are going to vote for Trump yeah. in 2020, but I do wonder if it undercuts the, the message of people who are value-centric to lead with the, like, to, to what extent do you feel the need to defend Trump as a human as opposed to defending your vote for Trump as a politician? Well, it depends on the, the charge against him. Um, I just, I think the facts ought to speak for themselves and on a case-by-case -case basis. I do believe that he has become more conservative, substantively. I, don't I agree think, with that. And, but let me tell you my theory why. I, I don't think he was ever ideological. He did have strong beliefs on, on tariffs and, and trade wars and that kind of thing, uh, and immigration. But he hung around New York liberals, and he thought they were nice guys. They were nice to him, and he's very much a, a, a product of who, I mean, he, he responds to people personally, if they like him and all that. Uh, and you can say that's a negative, and I understand. But now he sees the left for what they are, and now he sees who the good guys are, and including the Christians, and I actually think there's been a transformation. I don't know about a conversion. I have no idea uh, what he is, where he is spiritually. But I think he's moved in the right direction substantively and idealized, even beyond how he's governing. I think he's become to see uh, who the good guys are in this existential struggle for America. Um, I don't want to say that to, to young people or any, anybody else that if he's doing something wrong, that it's right. I don't want to say that it is. But I might... Uh, give him some slack on things that I don't take him that seriously about. So if he says I want to uh, wrestle somebody to the floor or, or, he, or he talks about it, I don't want him to curse in public, obviously. But if he's combative, that doesn't bother me. I want him to be combative because that's what we've missed and that's, what, that's why the base is so, uh, that's why there's rallying around him because they see, I really believe this, that, we, that the conservatives thought, the Tea Party thought, that we weren't, that there were no leaders standing up for our values and, and, and our ideas. I, I, something that does bother me, I am probably as idealistic as you are. I consider myself a constitutional conservative. I was for Ted Cruz because I saw him as the vintage, pure constitution, constitutional conservative. Now, 
I, I know Trump isn't that. And he isn't the kind of guy that can give, give me goosebumps about someone who will read constitutional law and all that. And I didn't agree with these people who I argued with during the primaries that we need somebody who's gonna come in and break everything to fix it. Because I believe what we needed to do was return to our principles, our constitutional principles. But since he's been in office, I've had a rethinking even of that. I'm, I'm, I've come to believe, and it may be rationalization, I don't know. I've come to believe that we did need somebody to really shake things up because I see, if Ted Cruz had come in, and I still love Ted and I'm friends with him, I don't know that the country would have allowed him to do what Trump has done. Trump is so unorthodox. Whether you give him credit for it, just say that his, his nature as being so unorthodox has resulted in some things really happening. I, didn't, I don't agree with the, the people who now analyze it. I think they got it right for the wrong reasons. But I think in retrospect, they were right that we needed to, to have things just broken. Not our system. And, and you're going to say, well, not you, but... I say to myself, then how do we restore these, this, the purity of our system and the, and the constitutional, constitutionality and all that stuff? Well, I, I think we can look to him as honoring the Constitution. I don't agree with the people who say he's so authoritarian. Yeah, he, he, likes, he likes Putin because Putin liked him. He, likes, he might admire tough guys, but he's not, he's not doing anything that's a threat. In fact, the only thing he really did, the, the only executive order that he ever did that I thought was blatantly unconstitutional was when he backed when he, when he reversed himself at the, at the pressure of liberals on, on the uh, border thing. Now, there are probably other examples. I don't fear him. I don't see that he wants to do any of that. And when he makes these statements, I wish I could be king, Obama said that stuff and meant it. I don't think Trump means it. So let's go back to this topic about President Trump shaking things up. So my view of President Trump shaking things up is I can name maybe one place where I think that no other Republican would have done it, and that is moving the embassy to Jerusalem. I think no other Republican yeah. does that. I think that he is so out of the box and so unorthodox yeah. a thinker that he thought, okay, there's no reason for this. Let's just do it. It's obvious that we should do it. Let's do it. I think even Ted Cruz would have had difficulty doing yeah. it. But in terms of shaking things up, I think Ted Cruz probably gets the tax cut. I think that Ted Cruz probably gets whatever reversal of Obamacare happened because it's just whatever Republican votes are there. I think he probably appoints the same justices, um, maybe better justices in the case of Kavanaugh. We'll have to see how Kavanaugh yeah. goes. Um, so where do you think that the shaking things up has, has really benefited the country and the conservative movement. When I say, I, I, don't, I don't want to make the statement that, that he could have done it better than Cruz in the sense of, uh, I, I don't mean he would have advocated better. I just think because of his personality and his charisma, he's able to get things done that Ted might not. Ted, they, they had so demonized Cruz uh, that they, I think they would have neutered him politically. I don't think he would have backed down one bit. I just don't think he would have, and I don't want to say he might. He's the one exception. I don't want to say anything negative about him because uh, I don't regret my support for him. Right. Still, but I just think in the end, Trump, because of his unorthodoxy, might have, even on Kavanaugh, he defends Kavanaugh. He says, right. he, somebody more circumspect may say, we got to let wait for the evidence to come in. And Trump waited, but then he finally said, this woman is not telling the truth. Those kind of things, Trump has more courage for whatever reason. It, it may, you may attribute it to the wrong things. But he's just, he's just a street fighter, fighter. He's a brawler. And I don't have any problem with that. In fact, some people say, we, not, we need to fight as dirty as the left or we're going to lose. I don't agree with that. We don't have to fight as dirty, but we have to fight as aggressively and as relentlessly as they do. So, so how do you think this plays out in 2020? So I'm, I will admit that 
I was a skeptic leading up to 2016, obviously, because the data suggested skepticism. Trump wins this shock victory. Um, my theory is that no one showed up to vote for Hillary Clinton. My evidence yeah. for that is that he won fewer votes in Wisconsin than Mitt Romney did, Trump did, and won the state. Hillary yeah. Clinton lost the state because no one likes Hillary Clinton. Yeah. And the dirty little secret of 2016 is that it was not, in fact, a referendum on President Trump. It was a referendum on the worst candidate in the history of the republic who everyone despised, including Democrats who voted for Bernie Sanders, <coughs> Bernie Sanders in the primaries. So 2018 comes around and we get shellacked. I mean, we lo it looks now like we're going to lose 40 seats when all is said and done in the House, which is a shellacking. Uh, we are only able to with gain two seats uh, in the Senate in a, in a cycle where there were 10 Democratic seats that were up for re-election. What is your perspective going into 2020? Are you optimistic that Trump is, is able to win re-election? Uh, if so, why? I'm not optimistic, but I'm not pessimistic. <clears throat> um, I, I thought we were going to make it closer in the House, um, but I don't think we got shellacked in historical from a historical perspective, but we lost way worse than, than we wanted to and, the, and the, it looked like we were going to before. I do think that Trump has something that other people didn't have that attributed that contributed to his victory. He can really rally his base, and and like nobody I've ever seen. I, he came to Cape Girardeau for the the uh, Holly rally, and you can't believe the the way he energizes people. And he gives a good stump speech uh, and gets people motivated. Now, and and we've talked about whether not we've talked about, but I've been reading. It, Trump can do this with his base, but he has to go beyond his base. I think Newt just says, and, and nobody can deny Newt Gingrich's brilliance, and, and especially as a stra uh, strategist. Um, if, he, if he really gets the base multi-hyper-expanded, we will win anyway. Um, I, don't, I don't believe that. But, but I believe, again, that what the left will probably do in the next two years will reveal them more and more for how unreasonable they are and how extreme they are. They might get smart and not be extreme. But we, Trump, we have to have a good economy. Uh, remember, Trump wasn't running. He was and he wasn't running in this election. But these elections weren't nationalized. Uh, and and the, the presidential election will be, uh, obviously, by definition. Um, and they're all voting for the one candidate versus the other, as opposed to 450, 435 different uh, districts. I think that he has a very good chance of winning, but it depends on, I saw Steve Dace write a column the other day saying, I'll tell you right now whether Trump's gonna win. It's whether the Democrats put up somebody likable. If they put up somebody that's not likable, uh, he'll win. If, it's like, if the person's likable, he won't. Now that kind of goes with your 2016 theory that Hillary wasn't and all that. But I don't think it's that simple. Steve Dace is a very smart guy, but I, I think that the economy is going to make a, a big difference, uh, and who the Democrats put up, obviously. But I don't think likability is all there is to it. These people who said, who, who purported to know what was going to happen a year out, to me, that's just folly. You can't. Th things can change overnight, and we've seen it literally change overnight. I think we've got to do much better messaging um, in, going forward. And Trump has. I wish there was a way that Trump. You could have the good Trump without the bad Trump. When I say the bad Trump, I'm talking about the shooting himself in the foot on certain of his tweets. And, but, but I like a lot of his tweets. He can, well, like I say, he can be combative without being personal. I mean, he can even be personal as long as he isn't um, rude and insulting in ways that he shouldn't. Right, be. I mean, I've, I've suggested that we actually create a fake Twitter app and we put it on his phone and then we can actually screen yeah. his tweets. He actually tweets it out, it gives him fake feedback. He thinks that it's real feedback, yeah. and then he goes around the rest of the day all happy, yeah. and it never sees the light of day outside of the White House. Yeah. Like, something like that, because 
obviously, I agree. There, there are a lot of great benefits to a guy with, with as much charisma, as much magnetism. I mean, the guy can bring a spotlight like nobody in the history yeah. of American politics, clearly. Uh, and having all of that without the, the downsides of saying whatever fails to be caught between his brain mouth filter would, would definitely be a good thing. Well, I don't have as jaded a view as you do of him. I, I probably did during the primaries. I don't see him as uh, a person that that is just all negative and all. I, I see if, if he, you got to remember something else. They have attacked him so much. And yes, he's um, in one sense thin skinned or, you know, whatever you want to call it. But He's legitimately responding to the to a relentless assault, no question, personal assault, and so he's defending himself and he's got a forum to do it. Sometimes I think he goes overboard is with the Adam Schiff thing, that kind of thing. Even though Schiff deserves ridicule, but but he doesn't need to gratuitously put that in. Like a lot of people on Twitter, you know the urge to be rude and funny, and then you wake up the next day. I wish I hadn't done it. And what I try to do on Twitter is to live a good example and try to be nice to people, even people that are mean to me, but I'm biting I mean, my you, tongue the whole you're time. You're much nicer on Twitter than I am, for I sure. know, but I, but I don't want to be. <laughs> my instinct is to go for blood. And I, I can see Trump, he's a brawler, and he just he doesn't. But I don't see him as some sinister guy. I see him as really wanting to help the country. Yeah, he gets too personal on stuff. Uh, but uh, I just, with young people, we've, I think young people have got to be, we've got to educate young people to what we face. That how they're going to lose their liberties uh, and everything that was built for them if the left continues to win. Well, so th- this seems like uh, a, a question as to what the future of the Democratic Party you would hope to see looks like. Because in the one sense, it sounds like you would like to see the Democratic Party reveal their full-scale radicalism for everybody, so that way we have a better chance of victory in 2020. At the same time, if that full-scale radicalism wins out, then you have a full-scale radical Democratic Party in charge of the government. So which well, direction would you like to see the Democratic Party take? Well, they're impotent now, though. The, the, all they can do is obstruct. All they have is the House. And so, no, I, do not, I, I don't subscribe to this view. Let them in charge so they can show just how bad they are and destroy the country. I don't think we have many years left. I don't think we have many chances That's left. That's not what I mean, but if, if, you, if you had your druthers, would they run in 2020 a more moderate candidate who appeals to the rest because you want two viable parties, or would you prefer they run somebody completely radical so that the country can see and then we risk whether that person wins or not? Well, that would be a calculation. If I thought the person could win, I wouldn't want them to run. Right. But I don't believe there's many, almost any such thing as a moderate Democrat anymore. They, they build people like that, uh, Sherrod and all that. I don't believe it. All these Democrats vote and enable the radicalism that we see in the country. So uh, I think that... Uh, that's one of the reasons I think the things that separate never Trumpers. By the way, I don't consider you never Trumper. I'm never. I'm not never Trumper. Yeah, right. I mean, yeah. like I was during the election, but the, to me, just so folks, folks understand the the, the sort of uh, breakdown of what never Trump is. Never Trump was a movement that existed. It wasn't really even a movement. It was more like a self definition. In 2016, will you vote for Trump in a general? Will you not vote for Trump in a general? I did not vote for Trump in the general, so I was a never Trumper. But after the election happened. There's nothing to vote for anymore now. He's yeah. the president. So the question becomes, is he good or is he bad? Yeah. And so I've declared myself a sometimes Trumper when but, he's good. But also, if you, if, you had a, uh, if you had had a crystal ball and, and you would have governed like this. and you Yeah, then you would have voted for him. Uh, yes. Okay. I mean, yeah. Yeah. The difference, our calculation is I think, I think uh, that Hillary was so bad and I think we're closer to the precipice to losing this country. I don't know about you, but I think, I see Tom Nichols 
I've been friendly with him on Twitter, but he advocated voting for all Democrats. Max Boot, these people are unhinged. I can't understand how you could be a conservative and advocate, because they think that, that if you do that, you'll ultimately bring the conservative part of the Republican Party back to its census. I don't think we have the time, and I think we're already back to our census. I don't, I don't think we've sold our soul. I think we are uh, in a desperate war with the left to preserve America, and Trump's the guy leading the charge right now, and, and he's just the one doing it, and we're supporting him for that reason. But I don't think they see the gravity of the threat, the existential nature of the threat, and the immediacy, the urgency of it, to the extent that I do. I may be wrong, but I don't see that we have a lot of time left. Okay, so I want to ask you in a second about uh, your book, Jesus is Risen, which, as I say, contrasts sharply with the Jewish version of this book, yeah. Nope. Yeah. Um, but <laughs> but I, I do want to talk about uh, your religious writing. We'll get to that in just a second. But first, when the founders crafted the Constitution, the first thing they did was make sacred the rights of the individual to share ideas without limitation by the government. The second right they enumerated was the right of the population to protect that speech and their own persons with force. You know how strongly I believe in these principles. I'm a gun owner. Owning a rifle is an awesome responsibility. Building rifles is no different. Bravo Company Manufacturing, BCM, was started in a garage by a Marine vet more than two decades ago to build a professional-grade product that meets combat standards. BCM believes the same level of protection should be provided to every American, regardless of whether they are a private citizen or a professional. BCM is not a sporting arms company. They design, engineer, and manufacture life-saving equipment, and they assume that every rifle that leaves their shop will be used in a life-or-death situation by a responsible citizen or a law enforcement officer or a soldier overseas. Every component of a BCM rifle is hand-assembled and tested by Americans to a life-saving standard. To learn more about Bravo Company Manufacturing, head on over to bravocompanymfg.com where you can discover more about their products, special offers, upcoming news. That's bravocompanymfg.com. If you need more convincing, go check them out at youtube.com slash bravocompanyusc. You can find out all about BCM and the awesome people who make their products. youtube.com slash bravocompanyusc. USA. Okay, first let's start with your political writing because you were well known for your political writing. You'd written a bunch of New York Times bestsellers on politics before you ever started writing about religion. What got you into writing politically in the first place? Regnery um, Publishing uh, asked me to write my first book on the Clinton Reno Justice Department. They saw that I had a column and I'm a lawyer and so I agreed to do it having no idea what I was doing and um, I started doing it. I mean, I started writing the book and studying to write the book researching. And the more I researched, the more I floundered, realizing, what's this going to be? The more I re read about it, the less I think I know. I don't know how to organize this. And, and, and not to bring up Coulter again, but she told me, she, she was a, a, an author for Regnery at the time, and she said, just start writing, and all of a sudden you're, you'll, you'll, your organization will be a byproduct of that. And I really think that was simple but profound advice. Once you start writing, you necessarily become organized because you have to focus on what you're writing about. So what was your family like growing up? Because obviously there's you, you're obviously very political. Your brother is Rush Limbaugh. Yeah. Uh, your, your, your father is a judge, correct? My, my dad was a lawyer. My, my grandfather was a lawyer. My uncle was a judge. Uh, so I, I, we grew up uh, as Republicans. My dad was a Goldwater conservative, very smart politically. Uh, he would hold court in our house. A lot of times uh, our friends would go out and look for girls and all that, but, but uh, other people's friends. Our friends would come to our house and listen to my dad pontificate. He was kind of uh, Rush's predecessor, but he just did it in the living room. And so and what was it like to grow up in that house? I mean, People always say, it must have been fascinating around the uh, dinner table. And the truth is, no, we just listened to my dad. We, <laughs> we never talked, but we did absorb it. And uh, in fact, when Rush first got into uh, 
radio. I, I mean, he, he always wanted to be a, a radio guy. And that didn't surprise me. But when he started, when he started talking about politics, I couldn't believe how uh, insightful he was and how knowledgeable he was because he didn't talk about it that much. We, he moved away when he was 18 or 19, and we, we got closer the older we got. But he left, and once I f first saw him make a speech at the Lions Club when I came to visit him in Sacramento, and he had a radio show out here, which was his forerunner to his national show. I go, man, he's like my dad. He knows all this stuff. I can't believe how good he is, how knowledgeable. So... But at our house, it was mainly we listened and we absorbed. So how did you move from political writing into religious writing? Because you've written several books on the Gospels and the New Testament and the historicity of Jesus. How did you move into in sort of the religious space after writing all these New York Times bestsellers on politics? Well, the first book I tried was about the Old Testament. I, um, and this is, uh, I think we've talked about this before, but one of the things that convinced me of Christ's deity is the messianic prophecies. Obviously, Judaism doesn't accept those. We've laughingly discussed that before. But I, that kind of tipped me over the edge when I looked at the messianic prophecies. I've always been a doubter. I believed in God, but I didn't believe in the God of the Bible. But it wasn't that I'd ever investigated the God of the Bible. I just negligently and recklessly rejected him without ever studying it. And so once I began studying it, um, and realized, or I came to the conclusion that the Bible's the Word of God, it kind of hit me like an epiphany, and I wanted to inhale everything I could about it. And so I started writing a book about the Old Testament, the first three books, um, and I submitted that to a Christian agent, and he said it's a little highfalutin for a person with no credentials, and it's not informal enough for the other, so basically buzz off. And so this was when I was in my 30s, and I, I was a little bit discouraged, but so I thought, okay, I'm, I'm, but I still, I continue to study for the next 20 years. I've continued to study pretty intensely uh, Christianity and theology, uh, and it was only after, and I, by the way, at that point, I had no platform. I had no columns, written no books, and done nothing in, along these lines other than practice law. And so after five political books, and a syndicated column for 15, however many years it was, I decided to revisit this. I still didn't know if I had the credentials. I mean, I knew I didn't because I'm not a pastor and all that. But I felt like there are so many people that are not, that, that don't hear the message of theologians and pastors. Uh, they, don't, they don't have access to some of the great writings that I do. Uh, and they, they, they don't read apologetics. And I thought, well, I can bridge this gap between uh, for the lay people, and I can introduce them to all this research and all the things that finally convinced me. So I wrote the first book, Jesus on Trial, as a, a chronological uh, history of my faith journey, and also as a, a book on apologetics. And then I continued after that into the Emmaus Code, and then the last book before this one was The True Jesus, which was about the Gospels, where I just consolidated all four Gospels into one running narrative and, and had commentary along with it. This book, Jesus is Risen, follows the Gospels. It's the book of Acts, which is the history of the early church, and six of the Apostle Paul's 13 epistles. So it's, it's really not a history of the church. It's a history of the church insofar as it tracks the Bible. What this book does is track those books. Every verse in the Bible, either stated or paraphrased, and then a commentary with a 
some of the great Christian thinkers and then my own insights. So where do you think the, the real gap, since you've obviously you're very familiar with the Old Testament and the New Testament, where do you see the, the real differences philosophically coming in between Old Testament you know, religions, Judaism, and, uh, and the New Testament? Because there seem to be a couple of different views about this. One is that Jesus radically shifts kind of the narrative of the Old Testament in a different direction. One is that he comes to complete the law, and so it's more of uh, a newer and more complete gloss on the Old Testament. But where do, where do you see the, the differences between Old and New Testament? Okay, I, I believe that the Christian theology believes, and I believe, that the New Covenant supersedes the Old Covenant, but the New Testament doesn't supersede the Old Testament. It, it is the second part of a two-part uh, story of God's salvation history. And, you know, I, I'm amused by all these secular critics who say, Jesus is all salt and light and love, and he never got mad, never reprimanded anyone. And what they don't realize is if, if Christian theology is true, the, the Bible, the, the God we worship is triune. And so Jesus was uh, with the Father and the Holy Spirit at the creation. So of course he embraced everything in the Old Testament, and it was intended to be, and the Jews were the chosen people, are the chosen people. Uh, and of course, the, the Christian view is that they're the, the chosen people to bring the gospel ultimately to the rest of the world. They anticipated a Messiah who would be uh, a political deliverer or a military deliverer, and they, according to Christian theology, not through their own fault, but misapprehended what the, the Old Testament scripture was saying, what it was really saying is he would, Christ would be a suffering servant and he would die for his sins. So when he died, not only did he not deliver a political victory, he was humiliated and didn't even lift a finger to defend himself. And he died and, and even some of his disciples at that point, Peter denied him after he died, even after having lived with him and seeing all his miracles. It wasn't until he, uh, they witnessed his bodily resurrection that they were transformed from cowards and skeptics to bold proclaimants of the gospel. But I believe that the Old Testament is absolutely true, absolutely the world, word of God, every bit inspired, um, and um, that there is total consistency. Um, now, I, as to whether the, the Mosaic law is still valid, I mean, obviously the Apostle Paul talks about Christians not having to be circumcised and all that because it's about faith in Jesus Christ. It's not about works. But the Christian view is that it was never about uh, works and that salvation has nothing to do with works uh, because we can't save ourselves. We're all sinners. And so you have to uh, you have to put aside your pride and put all your trust or faith in, in Jesus to, to bridge that gap between uh, sinfulness and uh, God's perfect sinlessness. So this is one of the descriptions I'd heard between Judaism and Christianity is that Judaism is much more acts-based, whereas Christianity is much more faith-based. So one might say, Okay, if you're if you're a Christian, you're. Some people say, why is why is in Christ there's liberty? People say, you know, uh, get rid of your change. You're a Christian, and then other people say, no, because you Christians are scolds. You you have to live to a higher standard. Well, in fact, here's the difference. Uh, Christians believe that we we do not have to follow the law as a matter of following them in terms of uh, some strict requirement, but that when you're under the law of Christ, the law of Christ isn't really a law, it's a matter of love and obedience and you even hold yourself to a higher standard, supposedly. Uh, but, you, but we believe that you can't hold yourself to, I mean that you can't fulfill 
the Ten Commandments on your own strength. It's impossible for any sinful human being, and we're all sinners, to live up to that standard. God can't allow sin in his presence. So there's got to be a way to cancel out that sin, and that's, and that's Jesus. But, but we don't believe that, I don't believe that all these laws have been eradicated. The Mosaic Law, in fact, all of them are still in force. They're still God's perfect laws. We still live by those precepts. There's a debate about whether uh, we follow the Sabbath and all that, and that hasn't been reaffirmed. Some people believe, some people don't. But basically, those, law, those were God's laws. They were perfect laws, but the Christian view is they couldn't deliver salvation. They were to demonstrate to people their inadequacies. So the law was given to show people how they couldn't live sinless lives, and, and that would draw them to Christ. It's more complex than that. So in this view of Christianity, is it better to be a sinner with faith or a saint without? So you're a person who fulfills as many, you're, you're a good person, you, you fulfill all 10 commandments better than most people, but you don't believe in Jesus. What, what, what does that mean in, in the Christian faith? The Christian faith is that salvation is only through Jesus. Now when you say better, I think there's a lot better acting people that aren't Christians, a lot of non-Christians who are better acting than I am. So I'm not not making that. And I don't, I don't like this judgmental stuff that, that, that some Christians have. And one of the things that turned me off originally, the, the scold aspect. But the theory is that when you accept Christ and you're converted, you're justified. And that uh, upon that moment, you're, you're freed from the penalty of sin. Uh, so for salvation purposes, when God looks at you, he doesn't see you. He sees Christ's sinlessness. He can't see you. Spurgeon, one of the great British pastors, wrote about this. God can't help but when he looks upon you and you've accepted Christ, all he can see is his son. That's for salvation purposes. But also something happens when you accept Christ, and that is uh, you're also freed from the power of sin, meaning the Holy Spirit begins to indwell you and empowers you to combat sin on a daily basis. Doesn't mean that you will ever overcome sin as a practical matter, but you will become holier. You'll become more Christ-like, more sanctified uh, at the more you avail yourself of the Holy Spirit. And so you will become uh, a better person in that sense, in an active sense, but you'll never be sin-free this, this side of eternity. I wanna ask about a, a misapprehension that seems to be had by a lot of folks, particularly in the Jewish community, about the evangelical Christian view of Israel. The, the misperception seems to be the only reason that evangelical Christians care about the state of Israel and the Jews generally is because the goal is to get all the Jews back to Israel, at which point Jesus makes his reappearance the, the, um, the rapture happens and everything is great from then on in. But if it weren't for all that, then Israel, screw them. Uh, that obviously is inaccurate. I, I am particularly offended by that. Um, first place, Christ was a Jew. Jesus was a Jew. That's in, indisputable. Uh, I believe we have a duty to love Jews. And, and, not, and uh, through, we believe that Christians derive their salvation through Judaism and through Jews. And it's, it's open to everyone, by the way. It's not just open to Gentiles. It's open to everyone. I, I also don't, I reject this notion, and, and I also don't understand it. And I know a lot of Christians who feel this way. This is a little bit different, but it's an analogous point. They want Jesus to come back. They want him to return. And they, I can't wait for Jesus to come back. I don't get that. Because if you believe you're saved, and if you believe you're going to spend eternity with God Anyway, what difference if he, does it make if he comes back and, and exacts revenge on your, or, on your enemies or whatever? I don't even understand that. But I, I'm, I believe that, that Israel 
is uh, the Jews everlasting possession. I believe in the Abrahamic covenant. I believe that it has not been eradicated. I don't agree with the covenantal theologians as opposed to the dispensationalists or whatever who believe that the church has been substituted for Israel. I believe Israel is Israel. That land is theirs forever. And when I think about the Jews returning to Israel in 1947-1948, that gives me goosebumps about the validity of the Bible and, and God's superintendence and sovereignty. That's just too unbelievable that that happened that God, uh, for God not to be behind it. And I believe that w those who uh, bless, bless Israel will be blessed. Those who curse Israel will be, will be cursed. And, but I don't even have to, I don't, I don't uh, my allegiance to Israel and to Jews isn't because I'm afraid I'll be smacked down. I believe it's just part of it. I, I just, I have an affinity. I'm not trying to, to patronize you, but I've felt that way. Uh, since And I, I think uh, believing Jews feel that way. They can sense it. The idea that we want to usher in uh, this end times and, and expedite the rapture. I know there's some Looney Tunes out there that have that. And some people, I guess, uh, but, I, but I don't know anybody, nobody that I respect wants to do it for that reason. They want to do it because they're so sick of how crazy the world has become. And that I can understand, but not for the sake of... Uh, ushering it in for any other reason, and, and not for utilitarian purposes about the Jews. That's pretty cynical. And it, but I know, I'm not saying you're cynical. I know no, no, but there, there, no yeah. there, there are a lot of misapprehensions yeah. about all of this, and I think that it's really important to elucidate that because when I say it, people don't believe it the same way they would from somebody who actually studies right. this stuff. Right. So we've spent a lot of time talking about sort of the divisions between Christianity and Judaism, but it seems to me that right now in the United States and more broadly, the, the grave division is between, Judeers, between believers in the Judeo-Christian value system and everybody else. That they're, they're right now, yes. uh, there are a group of people who believe that essentially the values of the Bible are the correct values as filtered down through thousands of years of thought, history, and evidence, uh, and that that is what has created Western civilization. And there's a whole other group of people who believe that Judeo-Christian civilization basically stands in the way of progress and that all of the hallmarks of Judeo-Christian civilization have to be obliterated in the name of, of that progress. And this seems to me to mirror a lot the division between right and left. What do you, what do you make of that generalized thesis? Totally agree. I, I, I think that um, the Judeo-Christian tradition is what has given rise to this unique system that we have, this unique country, the freest, most prosperous, most benevolent nation in the history of the world. And if I had to, uh, I mean, we could go in and we could talk about how the majority of, of, of the founding fathers were strong practicing Christians. There's debate about that. I mean, some people point to the high profile Ben Franklin, Thomas Jefferson, who are arguably not strong Christians. They might have been um, deists or whatever. Um, but the overwhelming majority of them were Christian and they believed in the Christian, the Judeo-Christian ethic. And by the way, just so people don't think I'm patronizing, Judeo-Christian is not some euphemism. It's, I considered Old Testament, New Testament as a, as a piece. And so that's what we're talking about. And so I think you can look at our founding and trace it. And I also think that the development of all these ideas, you can trace back uh, to Christianity and, yeah. and, and, and Jude, I mean, Judaism yeah, yeah. and Christianity. So I do have one final question for you. You know, we've talked a lot about the value of church and the value of community and all the rest of this. There's still a lot of people who doubt the veracity of, of Christianity itself. What is your most convincing argument? You have, to, you have 30 seconds to argue somebody into why Christianity is correct and people should go back to church. What is the, what is the, short, the short form argument of every book you've ever written? 
<laughs> well, I, I believe the Bible is the inspired word of God, every bit of it, Old Testament and New Testament. I believe if somebody reads it with an open heart and sees how the, Testament, the Testaments are connected and see how the apostles were changed when they encountered the risen Christ, uh, that they will be drawn to him and then they will be uh, drawn to, to read the Bible for them. So that's why I write these books is to lead people to read the Bible themselves. This is not the book of God. It's a book about the book of God, the word of God. And so uh, Christians believe that Jesus, uh, that our salvation is in Jesus. So I would encourage people to place their faith in Christ, but they're not going to do that on a bet like Pascal said. They have, to, they have to really believe it and they have to embrace it. And the only way to really do that is to introduce yourself to the Bible, familiarize yourself with the message of the Bible, or, or mentoring or preaching. And, and so you go to church and that's what you do. Uh, you asked me why we would go to church. Well, we're a com we believe the triune God is a community, is a communal God. We believe that Christians ought to live in community and build each other up and enforce each other, hold each other accountable. So we are, are made in the image of the triune God is what we believe uh, as well. And so we're community people who should go to church for that reason alone. You can't do it all on your own. And one of the, one of the great debates I've been having with some of my friends in the, in the more secular community, uh, a lot of neo-enlightenment thinkers, people like Steven Pinker and Michael yes. Shermer and, uh, and Sam Harris who've been on here and talking about the enlightenment uh, and the glories of the enlightenment, is it seems to me that they forget that the enlightenment was not rooted in nothing. It wasn't like things were just nowhere and then magically in 1770 outsprang this philosophy in one particular place at one particular time that the enlightenment values of the value of the individual, there's, there's a root for that and it's in Genesis when it talks about man being made in the image of God. There are roots to all of this. That's the key. Let's say that it wasn't founded by Christians uh, overtly where you can look on a, a statistical chart. <laughs> the fact that they designed a government to be uh, that believed in unalienable, it was based on unalienable rights. That is, what, what, what gives rise to unalienable rights except that we are created in God's image? And, and also, the fact that we believe we're fallen, uh, the Christians believe we're fallen. So you have, it's kind of a paradox. You have a tension between men who are, who are uh, born in God's image and who possess that image, but who are also fallen. So they've got this, there's this dichotomy. So you, you're entitled to those rights, but if you have them, you'll abuse them because of our fallen nature. So they constructed a system that would maximize their liberties, uh, but would also restrain government such that uh, uh, it they would not become, they would not be, it would not be absolutely absolute power in the individual, and the government would not have absolute power. See, what distinguishes our system is, you, we have limitations on government. Ancient Greece might have had liberty, but they didn't have restraints on government. And restraints on government is really what gives rise to liberty as a practical matter. And so you have these checks and balances. You have sinful men competing against each other in these three different branches. Also, their, their sinfulness is exacerbated by the, the axiom that power corrupts. And so you've got that going on. So what they, knowing that they weren't going to be perfect, uh, they competed. They, they set these competing branches up so that the byproduct would be liberty, maximizing liberty. Well, this is one of the reasons why I think that what you actually do is incredibly important, even while we disagree on religious matters, yeah. because I think that if you do not have a social fabric that is backed by religion, if you don't have a group of people who are going to church together or synagogue together and worshiping God together and understanding the Bible together and creating a social standard together, then the system that the founders built 
is utterly inadequate because then you have a bunch of people who are doing whatever they want and they have the rights, but no, there's no way for the government to constrain them. Yes, and I've heard you talk about this before and it, it rang a bell with me because I also think it. The, the Enlightenment um, people can't, can't, not, cannot have uh, developed this out of nowhere. They were, they were building on the shoulders of people who had preceded them, including the scientists who, who uh, were incentivized to study because they believed in God. Newton was one of the uh, most ardent Christians there were, and he wanted to investigate the universe to see that it, to discover God and to, and to affirm and have and validate. But I, 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 there's an analogy I can make too. People think, okay, why is socialism? We're kind of a quasi-socialist socialist country now. And so the liberals will say, uh, okay, so we're socialists and we still got a bunch of liberty here. What, how are we not free? You know how it left. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, my contention is that we're piggybacking on all this, all the foundation that we've enjoyed all these years and that pretty soon we're gonna get to the end of our rope and we're already seeing it. We're uh, emptying our tank. We have no reserve. And it's all found on these values. Uh, Adams, Washington, you, all these guys, all these founders talked about the Constitution is made only for a moral and religious people. And I really think we're seeing that now. What, what, why else do you see uh, uh, the left proposing judicial activism? And they've been doing this forever because they don't really believe in the Constitution. So, so if you have judges who will interpret the law, who will rewrite the law according to what, what they think it is, they think it ought to be, then you can just unravel the Constitution that way. You unravel it by executive orders, not paying any attention to it, by not respecting it, by, having, by rewriting everything in our, in our moral code, by perverting language through this postmodernism where words don't mean... And you talk about... You're the most eloquent person talking about this today, about the... the uh, What's the... Transgenderism. Yeah, transgenderism, but the intersectionalism. Interse oh, intersectionalism. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and that is so, such a dan dangerous, such a threat to our values. Because we're saying that words don't mean what they mean, that sex doesn't mean what it says. But, but, but now we've got a situation where liberals are so inconsistent. You know, they, they say we're the science deniers, and now they're denying science on the, on the uh, gender thing. And they say they... that. Women, hear me roar, they support that. But now they're trying to eradicate all differences between the genders, between the sexes. So ultimately, liberalism is founded on nothing. It's moral and intellectual anarchy, and it will implode uh, on its own, except it won't implode if people in power force it down our throats. And that's why ultimately I see uh, the left. I see a connection between uh, liberals and the left and this authoritarian uh, mentality, and it scares me. So do you think that there is a possibility of a religious revival, which it seems like would sort of be necessary in order to reinstill any sort of gas into the tank in order to, to refill that? Because where else are we going to get the, the energy to rebuild the social fabric? I'm seeing an att you know, attempts to substitute in social, social media networks. We're going to get together that way. Or we're going to substitute angry politics for the building of a social fabric. Are you hopeful for the, for the future of the country? Do you think a religious revival is around the corner? I, I have to be hopeful. I have five kids. And I, I'm optimistic by nature. At least I force myself to be. I don't know what my heart of heart says, but I don't allow myself to be pessimistic. And, and I, I see in, in our society, when my parents were growing up, and you, you grew up in an Orthodox church. I went to an Orthodox synagogue. I, I went to church and everything, but we didn't go to Bible studies. I don't know of anybody, any adults, when I was a kid, who were in Bible study. Yet today, there are Bible studies all over the place. So I see a, a rejuvenation, a revitalization of 
Christian belief and practice. Even though we see a, a increasing polarization, secularism is, secularism is on the rise, but so is uh, faithful Christianity. And, uh, and I mean, active Christianity and mission work and all this stuff. But the only problem I see too, not the only problem, but another problem I see is this secularization has entered the churches. And now we see churches and mega churches whose goal ostensibly is to get as many people in the church doors as they can for Christ because they want to introduce people to Christ. And that's a loving motive. But in doing that, they sometimes dilute the biblical message and, and they cater to the culture and conform to the culture instead of encouraging the culture to conform to the ways of God. That scares me. The, as many external uh, threats as there are to the church, uh, it's the internal ones that scare me the most. As to whether, uh, I, I don't know how it's going to, going to unfold. I, I almost see, uh, I'm, I'm hoping we see some kind of a, a reaction to the left's insanity. It, it's, it's almost like we're not doing it on our own by inspiring people. Uh, I mean, people are in Christian communities being inspired, but we're not affecting the culture like we do. And, and a lot of times when you have Christian movies and all that, they don't resonate, maybe because they're too preachy or whatever, uh, but they're not resonating or they're not cool enough. So we're, we're losing the youth. And, but, but I still see uh, when you have the secular world so insane that we still have sanity in our, in our communities. And we still have people who recognize right and wrong. And w when they see the left getting increasingly unraveled, there might be a return that way. I know it's probably pretty sad that I, my hope for a revival is in the recognition of how crazy and evil the, the opposition is. But that's probably what my hope really is. Well, David, thank you so much for stopping by, and it is so cool that we finally get to meet it after is. nearly 20 years. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for coming in. The Ben Shapiro Show Sunday Special is produced by Jonathan Hay, executive producer Jeremy Boring, associate producer Mathis Glover, edited by Alex Zingaro. Audio is mixed by Dylan Case. Hair and makeup is by Jeswa Alvera. And title graphics by Cynthia Angulo. The Ben Shapiro Show Sunday Special is a Daily Wire Forward Publishing production. Copyright Forward Publishing 2018. We'll get to more on this in just one second first. Pure Talk believes in American values and that free should mean, you know, like free. So when you switch to Pure Talk today, you'll get a free Samsung 5G smartphone. There's no four-line requirement, no activation fee, just a free Samsung that's built to last with a rugged screen, quick charging battery, and top-tier data security. Qualifying plans start at just 35 bucks a month for unlimited talk, text, 15 gigs of data, and a mobile hotspot. Pure Talk gives you phenomenal coverage on America's most dependable 5G network. It's the same coverage you know and love, but for half the price of the other guys. The average family saves almost $1,000 a year. So I challenge you to choose a company that actually doesn't hate your guts and shares your values. Let Pure Talk's expert U.S. customer service team help you make the switch today. Go to puretalk.com Shapiro to claim your eligibility for your free brand new Samsung 5G smartphone and start saving on wireless today. Again, go to puretalk.com Shapiro to switch to my cell phone company. I've been using them for years. They're fantastic. You'll love them as well. Go to puretalk.com Shapiro and claim your eligibility on that free brand new Samsung 5G smartphone. Start saving.